Hello and welcome to the Australian Bitcoin podcast. It's your boy, the Bitcoin Baron, also known as Daniel W, transmitting from a hidden citadel in a corner of Terra Australis. Today I will be talking to you about the banking crisis. The financial system in the US is falling apart at the seams. Bitcoiners are watching the slow motion crash of this economic system while Bitcoin price is shooting up. Bitcoin price has increased by about 30% in the last few weeks, from around 20,000 US dollars to just under 30,000 US dollars now. By the way, I am recording this 22nd of March 2023. So in today's show, I will be talking about what actually occurred, what caused the banks to collapse, how this crisis compares to the 2008 financial crisis, as well as the consequences of the crisis on the financial system and on Bitcoin. So a lot of this show is based on Lynn Auden's newsletter. For those of you who don't know Lynn Auden, she's a Bitcoiner. She has an economics and financial background and she produces a newsletter. It's a very good quality newsletter where she talks not just about Bitcoin, but more broadly about financial matters and gives financial advice. So she produces newsletters and content, and her content is very high quality. I would highly recommend it, but it's a bit more in-depth than what I'm doing for this podcast. So on this podcast, I'll do more of a summary for your convenience of her, of what she done, and some other things that I would that I wanted to add in. But yeah, if you have time, check out Lynn Auden's newsletter. So this show is brought to you by Hardblock, Australian Bitcoin exchange. We make it easy to dollar-cost average. You can set up automated, set-and-forget dollar-cost averaging from your bank to your code storage, code storage Bitcoin wallet. We encourage and help you with self-custody. On 8th March 2023, Silverguide Bank was closed down. Two days later, SVB, Silicon Valley Bank, collapsed. That was the second largest collapse in US history. Two days after that, Signature Bank collapsed. That was the third largest collapse in U.S. history. And I know you're wondering, what was the biggest collapse in U.S. history? I'm here to provide you the answers. It was Washington Mutual Bank in 2008 in the global financial crisis back then. So coming back to this crisis, First Republic Bank was also on the edge, colla- on the edge of a collapse before major U.S. banks stepped in, got together to save it. The crisis has also spread globally, with Credit Suisse collapsing before being bailed out and bought by UBS and the Swiss government. Credit Suisse is an old bank, over 100 years old. It's one of the oldest banks, one of other old banks. So all this is happening 
in the middle of an interest rate rising cycle, with interest rates rising due to creeping high inflation. The esteemed Federal Reserve Chair Jeremy Powell was saying that just recently, he was a few days ago, this was, esteemed Jeremy Powell was saying that the banking system was safe and that he could see further rate hikes in the US of 50 basis points. Obviously, that has been cancelled and we were back to the money printing. Money printer going. So the Fed has stepped in to rescue the depositors of the collapsed banks and increase liquidity for the banks. This will be a rescue of the depositors, even the ones above the $250,000 size. So in the US, there's a regulation and insurance where all deposits below $250,000 are insured. But the Fed has stepped in to protect all depositors, regardless of their limit. So in effect now, all deposits in the US are guaranteed in the event of a loss, regardless of size. Many of these banks that, clo that closed down in the US, they were very tech-oriented banks. Some of them, a lot of them were providing services to the crypto industry. Circu, Binance, and FTX both use, all used Signature and Silverguide Bank. USDC Stablecoin also used voice banks, and there were some concerns about the peg of USDC, given that the fine funds backing it were in question. But obviously that has been resolved now with the buyout of the depositors. So things will be, should, should be okay. But I will go on a bit of a tangent here. It does show the importance of self-custody because if those deposits went rescued, people storing cryptocurrency on voice services could have suffered and would have likely suffered a loss. The, I use the analogy of some people are afraid of moving Bitcoin over exchange, we think it's better storing it on an exchange. And I always use the analogy that that's like buying a plane, but deciding to drive it around on the ground instead of flying it, because flying is too risky. Buying Bitcoin and then deciding to keep it on exchange is very similar. But anyway, that's a tangent. I will, I will go back to the main topic. So something to note here, the first bank that's that what was closed down, Silverguide Bank. So you, the people there say, and apparently that's correct, that it was actually solvent, while the other three banks were not. So it filed for different reasons. It, there were some regulators looking into it, and it was the regulators that shut it down. Now, I don't know the details, but some people have made some accusations that it was purposely targeted because of how it provided services to the crypto industry. It was a very crypto-friendly bank and something like 60-70% of its business was the crypto industry. 
Of it is also true that the bear market now, its volumes, uh, obviously, since it was the lion's share of its business was for the crypto industry, with the bear market now, a lot of that voice deposits went wide down. So I, I don't know, but some people are raising some questions there. Something else to note about this crisis is that the Federal Reserve, the US Federal Reserve, clearly did not see these collapses coming. But it's very likely that the people at the banks themselves, the people running the banks, they did see this. And I think that can be seen from, there were some, from some of these banks, there were some major resignations in the last few months. There were rumors certainly about Credit Suisse having financial problems not being solvent months back last year. Obviously Credit Suisse isn't a US company, so that's a bit, doesn't quite apply. But another really interesting thing is that insiders at Silicon Valley Bank were selling their shares in large quantity in the weeks before the collapse. So they could likely see, they likely saw it coming. And not only were they selling the shares, it has now emerged, I only found about this today, but it has emerged that they were making large loans from the bank that they run, from SV Silicon Valley Bank, who were making loans from the bank to themselves. There was a chart I saw on Bloomberg, and the chart showed loans from the bank, from SVB Bank to its office holders. And on that chart, in that, in the, just in the last quarter leading up to the collapse, there was a huge increase in the size of the loans. It was around four times higher than the average in previous quarters. And it was higher than any other quarter. So we don't know what the terms and the details of these loans that the people running SVB Bank guide themselves. But I think I can guess that they were probably pretty generous terms to the, to the office holders. Probably not very good for the bank, but generous to the office holders. And I'm pretty sure that the banksters might bank while the common guy who will be bailing out the depositors is going to get screwed. So what caused these bank failures? In a nutshell, the increasing interest rates lowered the price of bonds that banks held as safe assets. As many depositors at the banks withdrew their cash, the banks had to sell these bonds at a loss to pay out their depositors. People became aware of this problem, rumors spread, and there were, run, there were runs on the banks. At that point, banks had to sell ever larger amounts of their bonds at a loss and they became insolvent. All these banks were techie-oriented banks for the tech industry. They had IPIs and a big online presence that made it much easier to withdraw funds and much easier to have a run on the bank than it was 
possible in the past. It wasn't like in 1920s where you had to physically go to your bank to withdraw the cash. You could do it all online very easily. Also, towards the end, uh, just before the collapse, there were some people queuing up at the banks, which was somewhat funny and sad to see. Okay, but I'll delve, that was the natural explanation. I'll provide a little bit more detail. And to do that, I'll first explain how bonds work. So bonds, and in this example, I'll just be talking about government bonds. Basically, they're a loan. When you buy a government bond, loan, you're providing a loan to, that, to the government. So the government issues loans and it promises to, let's say it issues a $100 bond and it promises that in some time, let's say, okay, let's say it issues a two-year $100 bond. That means after it issues it, it promises to pay to $100 in two years to whoever owns that bond. And people bid on the open market to buy that bond. Obviously, when, when it's first issued, it would be below that $100 value because you have to wait two years to you get that value. So it would be $90, $95, whatever it is. The closer it is to $100, the lower the interest rate is. The interest rate is really the difference between the price for that bond currently and the final amount you get divided by the time, more or less. Most central banks, and in US the central bank is called the Reserve Bank, sorry, the Federal Reserve of the Fed. So central banks of the Fed, they really control the prices of bonds because they're the largest buyer and seller of bonds and since they have unlimited amount of money because they can print it, they can basically control the price of bonds. So if they want to increase interest rates, they would start selling some of the bonds and interest rates would decrease. Sorry, would increase. So if the bond so it's important to remember when interest rates increase, the prices of bonds are lower. The final price is always, the final amount you get is always the same, but the car, at the current time, if interest rates increase, the price of bonds is lower, and if interest rates decrease, the price of bonds is higher. It's much closer to the final value. So that's kind of a basic explanation of how bonds work. So how, how does the banking system work? And we're talking about the commercial banks that we use. So commercial banks, they have assets and liabilities. And the liabilities are mostly deposits that people make. So when you go to a bank, you deposit $10,000, and that's an asset for you, but that's a liability for the bank now, because the, the bank has that $10,000, but has to pay it back to you. That's its liability. And it has always deposits and it uses them to buy other assets. The assets the bank holds, 
So there are different types of assets. Some of them might be more risky type of assets like loans to other businesses or home loans or shares on the stock market or it might be government bonds or it might be and some of those assets would just be cash on hand. So some of in case in case people want to make withdraw from the bank, the bank needs some it needs to have some available liquid funds. So it does store some of that. And the ratio that banks keep between the actual cash, the, the funds they have available, and those other kind of riskier assets, that's called reserve ratio. So if there's laws and regulations in place to how much they have to keep uh, as the reserve ratio. And this kind of system is called the fractional reserve banking, as some people recently have been calling it, the fictional reserve banking. Obviously, they're not a fan of it. Okay, so that's kind of how the banking system works. It has some risky assets, and some of it, it keeps some of the money it keeps on hand, available, and some assets are more riskier. Okay, and that ratio of safe to riskier assets, it actually has improved now in the last few years since the 2008 crisis, and that was part of the big part of the part of the quantitative easing since the 2008 crisis was to provide more liquidity and provide more funds to the banks so they have a better ratio. So that ratio has increased. Back in 2008, banks had about $23 of deposit liabilities for each dollar they had in liquid cash. Now they have around $6 in deposit liabilities for every dollar they have in liquid cash. So that's uh, obviously, that is actually a much better um, ratio, so even in a better position from that perspective. And another aspect is that the assets they hold in general are a lot more safer than they were in 2008. In 2008 some of the assets that the banks bought were indeed very risky and right now the banks that the assets that banks held now were considered conventionally much more secure so SVB Silicon Valley Bank held a lot of treasury bonds and and what some people might consider as safe securities in fact what happened is that in 2020 and 2021, when Corona was hitting us, there was a financial stimulus in the US and everywhere else. There was financial stimulus where people were basically given away free checks and they were given money to support them. And what occurred during that time is that a lot of these people, they got those checks and they deposited in, into their bank accounts. So the bank suddenly had more deposits available to them. And what they done at that time, they invested it in long-term 10-year 
government bonds. In other things also, but a lot of it was invested in these kind of long-term government bonds. And they were pretty low-yielding bonds at the time. So if they're low-yielding, that means their price was high. So treasury bonds are usually considered pretty safe. The reason they're considered pretty safe is the government treasury bonds, at least, they're guaranteed by the U.S. government. The U.S. government, when you buy a bond from a U the U.S. government, the U.S. government promises you to pay back that bond, that loan. And of course, we all trust the U.S. government. Who wouldn't? Yeah, I mean, they're considered trustworthy, very basically risk-free. They're considered risk-free assets. What actually you get? They're risk-free in the long term because they're guaranteed to be paid out. But in the short term, they can fluctuate in value. So what happened is that in the last year, the U.S. Federal Reserve has increased rates much faster than most commercial banks anticipated. In fact, Federal Reserve raised interest rates at the quickest absolute pace in decades. It has moved them up 4.49% in one year. In percentage terms, it was the fastest increase of all time. It went up basically from close to zero, 0.08% to 4.5% in one year. So that was a 50 times, 57 time increase. So there was some bad risk planning by the commercial banks because awful bonds are conventionally safe. The bond securities that the banks own might not have credit default risk, but they have duration risk. This is also a bit different from 2008, where banks held risky investments with credit risk and voice investments defaulted. There's about $17.6 trillion in bank deposit in the U.S. in aggregate, and over voice funds can't all just go somewhere because most things will not be able to absorb that kind of money. You can't put it into like physical cash because there just isn't actual physical cash going around. Yeah, most things will not be able to absorb it and most people uh, aren't ready to put that kind of cash everywhere. Maybe in the future, they might have an option and they'll put it into Bitcoin. But for now, they don't really have much option of where to move it. So most of us, as the rumors spread, spread that many of the small banks were unsafe, a lot of their depositors moved money from the smaller banks to the bigger banks that they considered more safe. Obviously, though, the problem with that is that it puts the many smaller banks at risk. This also causes issues for the economy as smaller banks provide finance for a lot of business in America. Small medium banks account for 50% of U.S. commercial industrial lending, 60% of residential real estate lending, 80% of commercial real estate lending, and 45% of consumer lending. So this is why the Fed felt like they had to intervene to guarantee 
consumer deposits for customers of always filed banks and they had to print money because there were just too much, the, the amount of file to cover the amount of voice failures and voice lost funds, they had to print money. But they thought they had to do that because otherwise all these small banks would collapse. It would be catastrophic for the US economy. And they needed to guarantee voice deposits to give people confidence in the banking system. Otherwise, all these banks would just blow up. What's the consequences of this crisis and what's the impact on Bitcoin? Well, the financial system does not look good long term, but will survive for now. The Fed has once again bowed out depositors and kicked the can down the road. Jerome Powell and the people running the US banking system look like clowns who don't know what they are doing. They said they will be performing quantitative tightening and that the banking system is safe only for banks to explode after a few days after voice comments and for them to start doing quantitative easing again. A lot of people's confidence in the financial system will be shaken. What this crisis also shows is that the US economy cannot handle higher interest rates without things blowing up. Over the past 10 and even 20 years of ultra-low interest rates, many businesses and individuals have levered themselves up with high debt. There is too much hidden leverage in the economy right now, and when the rates go up, things explode. Here I'm talking about the US economy, but it's likely a lot of similar things are true for the Australian economy and even more so for the European economy. In fact, this is the second time the US government had to backtrack from quantitative easing, sorry, from quantitative tightening. Back in 2018 and 2019, the Federal Reserve was performing quantitative tightening and it caused the repo rates to skyrocket. The Fed had to go back to quantitative easing for the sake of financial stability. And then obviously it started doing quantitative easing, printing huge heaps of money during the coronavirus crisis. The repo ride, by the way, that's an important method banks use to transfer funds between themselves for the sake of having liquidity. So what all this means is that inflation will keep going up for the time being. It also means that the Fed is faced with a choice between high inflation or financial collapse and recession. Either case is good for Bitcoin. If we have high inflation, I think that's obvious why that is good for Bitcoin. Obviously, Bitcoin being limited supply and kind of being flighted away. If the dollars inflate, 
the Bitcoin value goes up relative to that, and people who flock to Bitcoin as a side to prevent their wealth from being inflated away. On the other hand, if at some point the Federal Reserve's Federal Reserve de decides that it it can't buy you out the banks anymore, if it can't buy you out the economy anymore, if inflation starts becoming too high, and the inflation becomes such a big problem that they just can't print more money and they don't buy, you, buy you the economy out. If you have this kind of financial, you have a financial collapse scenario where a lot of institutions will start collapsing. And in that case, Bitcoin will become a safe asset for people to store their wealth. So in this crisis, what happened, I was reading articles and posts from people in Silicon Valley who had their company, they were CEOs and they had their company funds at Silicon Valley Bank. And these were good businesses. They were businesses who were making profit, making revenue. They had a good model. They were doing decent business and they were making money and they were putting that money into Silicon Valley Bank. And suddenly they found out that they couldn't withdraw their money. They lost access to the money. They didn't have any money. And that put voice, obviously there was a huge loss for these businesses and would have put some of them out of business, even though they were otherwise viable businesses. Now, in this case, they got rescued, so things will be okay. But in that kind of scenario, if, one, if at some point they don't get rescued, having your money in that scenario having your company funds in bitcoin will start looking like a very smart idea and somebody like michael seiler from microstrategy who did put his company's funds in bitcoin will look like a genius in fact maybe in 10 20 years maybe the, even the u.s government might default on its debt now, you know, who am I to question the U.S. government? We all know the U.S. government is very, very trustworthy. You know, if you look up trustworthy in the dictionary, I believe there's a flag, there's a U.S. flag there. So who are we to doubt them? But crazier things have happened. There's crazy things happening in the world right now that people could not imagine 10 years ago. And if at some point the U.S. government does de default on its that this countries, nations, sovereign wealth funds who hold U.S. government debt will look very silly and countries like El Salvador who hold some of their country's funds in Bitcoin instead of just U.S. dollars will reap a reward. Another consequence of this banking crisis is that why the Fed has bailed out the depositors, this introduces moral hazard into the system, more moral hazard into the system, which makes these kind of failures more likely in the future. So before, depositors under $250,000 were guaranteed. Now, essentially all depositors are guaranteed. But what that means is, any depositor, large or small, has no incentive to seek out a safe bank 
to keep the deposits in because the deposits are guaranteed anyway. So all depositors, the only thing we're going to look at really is how much interest and how cheap it is to keep them, their money at a certain bank. And for the bank owners, there's no incentive for them to take a lower profit but lower risk type of model because nobody's going to care. Why would they be advertising, oh, we are low-risk banks, so what? Consumers don't care. So they're going to have competitive pressure to take higher risks, to increase their profit but take higher risks. And because of those higher risks, there will be crises like this again. And there will be more, and they will be more frequent. So, you know, I think the best thing is to get some popcorn ready and for the coming years and keep stacking Bitcoin. So that's all for this episode, folks. I hope you enjoyed it and you got something out of it. Bitcoin Baron, out. <laughs>